When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No regrets, my bravery test as I paint these trees on my canvas of a life. The low hum of cheap wheels on a road that's a little too rough. Oh, full tank driving these dreams in the radio blasting one Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Can't Move Fast Enough by T.J. George. T.J. is our feature Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us at the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about him and let you listen to that entire song. Right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Steve, do you like shipwreck mysteries? Oh, yes. They're one of my favorites. I love researching these stories, which is kind of a weird thing to say because I certainly don't love the loss of life. But shipwrecks in Lake Erie are closely tied to American history. And you know me. I love me some American history. So for this story, we're going back to 1850 when Lake Erie was the highway to the Midwest. Every day, passenger ships plied the waters of the lake, carrying pioneers who had come from the East Coast to promising new lands in Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, and Wisconsin. It was a particularly busy year. There was an influx of European immigrants, families who had escaped revolutions and food shortages and a lack of opportunity, and the New World promised them freedom, cheap farmland, and the ability to go as far as their wits could take them. They would spend weeks traversing the Atlantic Ocean by ship, and then the Erie Canal would ferry them from the East Coast to Buffalo, New York. From there, they faced just one final short leg across Lake Erie to their new homes. Now, Captain C.C. Robbie, he knew a good business opportunity when he saw it. He wanted to capitalize on the immigrant migration, and so he bought himself a new ship, the G.P. Griffith. The Griffith was state-of-the-art in 1850, a wooden steamship propelled by paddle wheels. 
It had two decks and was 193 feet long. That's about two-thirds the length of a football field with 56 staterooms. It was launched into service just two years earlier at Maumee, Ohio. In its first year, the Griffith had its first accident. On October 17, 1849, it collided with the Canadian schooner California near Cleveland. The California was hurt bad and drifted ashore. The GP Griffith shook off the encounter with little damage. And when it was passed on to Captain Robbie, it had been refurbished and repainted. On June 16, 1850, Captain Robbie was ready for his inaugural trip. Joining him for the journey was his wife, child, mother, and assorted relatives. The ship set sail from Buffalo, New York on a three-day voyage to Toledo, Ohio, with several stops along the way. The lake was calm. There was no bad weather in sight, and that was good. Lake Erie is deceptively one of the most dangerous stretches of water in the Great Lakes, maybe in the world. Its shallow depth allows huge waves to be whipped up quickly by a sudden squall. But ships face other dangers as well. Poor seamanship and mechanical failures have claimed many lives. And in tonight's story, something that really does not go well with water at all, fire. The Griffith made its scheduled stops in Erie, Pennsylvania and Fairport, Ohio, as scheduled, picking up and dropping off passengers without incident. On the evening of June 17, as it pulled away from Fairport, headed for Cleveland, there were 326 passengers on board, most of them immigrants from England, Ireland, Germany, and Scandinavia. No doubt, they crawled into their berths that night, hopeful and excited. Many of them were taking advantage of government programs that offered inexpensive tracts of fertile farmland in Northwest Ohio. They were just a day away from their final destination. One day left on a journey that for some of them began months ago on another continent. The Griffith moved through the moonlit waters of Lake Erie on that peaceful night, the deck still and quiet as the passengers slumbered inside. The ship's wheelsman, Richard Mann, was the first to understand that peace was about to be ended. It was just after 4 a.m., when he spotted flames shooting up around the ship's smokestacks. He quickly notified Captain Robbie, and the fire alarm was sounded, waking the passengers and sending them onto the decks. The Griffith was still 20 miles from Cleveland, but the shoreline was in sight. Willowick Beach was visible in the pre-dawn light, maybe just a couple of miles away. Robbie ordered the ship steered toward shore, intending to simply beach the ship so the passengers could reach land. But in the desperate race to shore, the speed only served to fan the flames. The aft of the ship and its collection of lifeboats were consumed. 
The passengers were forced forward, but there was no safe place for them. As the top of the ship burned, it rained fire on the human cargo. The crew had to abandon their posts, causing the Griffith's engines to run out of steam. The paddle wheel slowed and then stopped. Now the ship's momentum was still carrying it forward closer to Willowick Beach, and the ending of the story might have been different if it weren't for the fact that the ship hit a sandbar. They were half a mile from shore, the water only eight feet deep, the depth of a typical swimming pool, but they might as well have been in the middle of the lake. As the fire consumed the wooden vessel down to the waterline, passengers jumped into the water. Few people knew how to swim in the 19th century. The water took them quickly, especially as they grabbed for each other in their panic. The heavy clothing of the day, the wool pants on the men, the long dresses wrapped around the legs of the women, doomed them as the fabric absorbed the seawater. The very fortunes they carried with them to begin their new lives also weighed them down. Some of these travelers were carrying their entire life savings on this journey. In some cases, they had sewn their gold and coins into secret pockets or worn money belts tucked under their garments. The ship's mate managed to swim ashore and found a small boat. He hurried back to rescue who he could, but by then, Almost everyone had disappeared beneath the surface of the water. We can only estimate the loss of life since the fire consumed the ship's records. 37 people, 36 men and one woman made it to land. By some estimates, that meant more than 280 souls had been lost. The remains of 154 passengers washed onto the beach. Without those ship's records, only 25 of them could be identified by name. They were taken to Cleveland aboard the steamer Diamond to be claimed by their families. For the rest, a committee of local citizens was formed to deal with a large number of unidentified bodies that had been washed ashore or been picked up by recovery boats. A mass grave was dug for them, and they were interred without coffins. 47 men, 24 women, and 25 children. Four days after the wreck, the county rec master released a list of the belongings that was recovered from the victims. It was pretty telling that the list consisted of common items of little value. These were immigrants who had brought all of their possessions and wealth with them to their new home. Where had all of that gone? That was evident to visitors who stopped by to see the wreck site, only to find the mass grave had been disturbed and bodies exposed. It is believed grave robbers were inspired by a singular note in a local paper that described one shipwreck victim who was found with more than $1,160 on him. Lake Erie didn't give up every body. It is believed up to 50 people remain consigned to the deep. 
In the days after the shipwreck, survivors began to recount the terror of their ordeal. A passenger named Mr. Parks shared how he had managed to grab a small piece of floating wreckage. He told a heartbreaking story of how he had to make the decision to push away others who were trying to sustain themselves on the same small fragment, a fragment which could barely support his weight. He watched scores of people around him flailing and going under, surrounded by screams of, save me. For a moment, he didn't think he could live with the memory. He thought about succumbing to the water and simply joining his fellow passengers. But his instinct for survival prevailed. Another passenger said he awoke that morning to the screams of fire. He went to the deck and heard the captain giving the orders for the boat to be steered toward shore. He said he didn't feel panic at first. Land seemed so close, but the fire spread more quickly than anyone thought possible. And then he felt the sudden jar as the ship hit that sandbar. An officer was shouting at everyone to save themselves, but giving no advice on how to do that. And so people deserted the ship, leaping over the rails in groups of 20 or more at a time. The Cleveland Plain Dealer reported that in some cases, recovery crews found five or six people tangled together firmly as if they had either clung to each other in panic or possibly families that didn't want to separate. Another survivor witnessed the fate of Captain Robbie. The man said he was supporting himself with a small piece of plank when he saw the captain and his family on the upper deck near their stateroom, forward of the wheelhouse. When nearly everyone had deserted the ship, he saw Captain Robbie lift and throw his wife into the water. Then he did the same for his child, his mother, and the barber's wife. Then he jumped in after them. The survivor recalled seeing the captain and wife embracing each other as they slipped beneath the surface of the water. None of Captain Robbie's family made it out alive, but that barber's wife did. She was the only woman to survive. The loss for some survivors was unimaginable. One traveler named Robert Hall lost his wife, four children, his mother, two sisters, and two brothers. Henry Wilkinson, the ship's clerk, threw his mother and niece overboard, then jumped in to try and help them stay afloat. They didn't make it, but he did, managing to cling to a piece of firewood and paddling to shore. To this day, we don't know what started the fire aboard the Griffith. Some say there were paint cans stored near the ship's firebox. Others say it was probably something as mundane as an overturned lantern or a careless cigar smoker. The Griffith was the worst tragedy in the history of the Great Lakes up to that time. To this day, it still ranks third in loss of life among all the thousands of Great Lakes shipwrecks, but is still number one in Lake Erie. The morning of the accident, the steamer Delaware attempted to tow the Griffith to shore. It was still smoldering. The engine and the paddle wheel were salvaged, but the hull fell apart during the tow. 
and was scattered east of the wreck site in waters north of the intersection of Vine Street and Lakeshore Boulevard. The cause of the ship's demise isn't the only mystery here. Treasure seekers have long wondered about the golden coin carried by the travelers, much of it presumably lost at the bottom of the lake. Divers today still sometimes explore the wreckage site. A half century after the tragedy, an amusement park was being built at Willowick Beach. Construction equipment dredged up skeletons from the mass grave whose exact location had been lost. City officials ordered the remains recovered and reburied farther inland atop a nearby bluff. Personnel at Willow Beach Amusement Park, which sat on a bluff just east of today's Willowick City Hall and was active until the 1920s, continued to collect more bones over the years as they eroded out of the soil. It wasn't until the summer of 2000, that was the 150th anniversary of the shipwreck, that an Ohio historical marker was finally dedicated, marking the site of the disaster. This is a part of the podcast where we bring on an Ohio mystery listener to be an armchair detective. Hey there, I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Detective, we are welcoming back to the program for the second time author Wendy Coyle, who lives in Port Washington. Hi, Wendy. Hello, Paula and Steve. Thanks for having me on again. Thanks for being with us. Hey, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your books? Sure. Um, So my job that I do, I guess my day job is I work at a college right here in central Ohio. I also teach English. So that's what I do when I'm not chasing around mysteries and doing some research. And then for my super fun job, I, I am an author and I have three books. I am currently working on the fourth one. So that is slated to come out next year. Maybe we can find some stories 
those out of there. And Paula, I could come back on the show and discuss those as well. Oh, absolutely. Can, can you tell us at all, like the, the topic of the fourth book? Yeah, sure. It is murder and mayhem on Lake Erie. So it would be, you know, scary, um, bad things that have happened right on the lake. So I limited it to happening on the lake because if I picked the lake shore, there's so many cities along there. So um, it's just things that were, you know, out on the lake. So I'm really excited. I found several great pieces for that um, book and I'm working my way through them, trying to finish some of that up. That is, I love that topic. You are going to keep us busy next year. Hurry up and get that book published. That's uh, okay. some of those story ideas. <laughs> so okay. listen, the, the GP Griffith, um, this, I have heard about this ship for many times over many years. And it just always struck me, in part because I picture this ship filled with these people who have literally spent months getting to this point. It's like their journey from Europe to where they're going to settle down and raise the next generations of their families. If you picture it on a scale of one to 20, they are at point 19. All they need to do is go this last inch and that's when they lose everything. I mean, what do you find heartbreaking about this story? I mean, you know, that is part of it, like just how close they were. And, you know, when I had started my research and the book that the story appears in is like Lost Treasures of Northern Ohio. And so I had started with the idea of look, I'm looking for a chapter to do a chapter on sunken treasures and this story popped up, and so as I started to research, you know, the real story here isn't about the treasure. It is about that tragedy and these people that, you know, were almost to where they needed to be, and then that happened. And then another element that is um, just heartbreaking is how close they were to the shoreline. When I think of that, it's hard to put yourself in their shoes because I'm thinking I, a half mile I can swim a half mile there's the shore you know eight feet that's a swimming pool I can I can swim over mm-hmm. there. and it just mentally it just doesn't seem like it should be that big of an obstacle for some of them yes but you would but for most of them you would think why couldn't most of them have survived and yet only 30 some people survived just a tiny sliver of the population of that ship and then you start reading about why you know they didn't swim much back in the 19th century they had these heavy clothes on they might have been weighed down by gold belts you know i mean belts that held their gold it's, it's yeah um that you're exactly right and, and then you know something when people tell the story like if you you know did a google search and pulled up they talk about that they probably could have seen the lights because they were so close they could have seen the lights of Willowick you know right where they they had crashed but if you think about um, electricity in Ohio um uh, 
Um, the small towns, they didn't actually have electric until the, the early 1900s. So really, there wouldn't have been that much light coming from the shore. And then the houses that were built there and the, if there were any, any kind of companies there, when they built houses, they built away from the lake shore. You know, if you take a drive by the lake shore today, there is the houses and that are as close as they can be to the lake because it's beautiful. Right. But back then, they didn't want right there on the lake shore because they were farmers and the lake would take out their crops. So there wouldn't have been that much light that they could have you know where they were where they were on the sandbar they couldn't have looked in and saw very much light so it'd been pretty dark um, and then another element too with this story is they were all um, immigrants from other countries so most of them didn't speak English so had there been somebody given orders or trying to give orders they wouldn't have understood anyhow and then you have the the screaming and the noise of the fire the noise of the lake I mean all of that added to to you know cause such a tragedy and then one other thing is even today you know when they talk about somebody drowning if there's two people swimming and one starts to drown they'll try to hold on to the other person and they pull the other person under with them like that's just a new thing that happens with drowning well you figure there were hundreds in the lake and they're all probably pulling and grabbing on anything that they can find so i mean just all of that compounded together then makes sense why they couldn't have got to the shore it was just a perfect storm of exactly everything went wrong that could have gone wrong yeah you're exactly right so we have really a couple of mysteries, a couple things that make this a mystery. And one is the cause of the accident. And I know there has been a lot written about this that blamed some paint cans near the boiler. But I also found a researcher who gives talks on this very shipwreck who is not at all convinced that that paint can story was real and said, we don't know that it could have been somebody tossing their cigar or a lantern got turned over. You know, in your research, did you were you convinced one way or the other or was the cause of this a mystery for you as well? Yeah, you know, it, it, different accounts will give different reasons. Um, and the one that I kept finding was, it, well, wasn't the cause, but it was one of the reasons why they couldn't put it out is that the tanks where they stored the water that they had to, to put out that type of fire were empty. And um, that came out in the inquest. So I do know that's true. Um, and then another piece with the mystery of the fire is the GP, GP Griffith was one of the few ships that had bought into this new type of chimney that had like a fire repellent on around the stack. Um, and so they had that, um, whether, so I don't know if maybe that that didn't work, um, but I just always found that interesting that they were one of the few ships at the time that had purchased that. Um, and then, so as far as how how it started, you know, I'm, I'm like you, there's different accounts. There's the, the paint can, there's um, somebody was smoking nearby, but um, in, in all of the history though, it's, it's still left as a mystery overall. 
that was interesting about the repellent that coated the smoke sacks because I had heard that too. But how interesting that you know your you raising the possibility that maybe it did the opposite, and we don't know, but maybe exactly. because that was such a rare thing. Now the other mystery, then, of course, is. All of these people had their life savings with them, and that stuff does not wash ashore. If you've got, you know, all your your money, that stuff's just going straight down to the bottom. Did you, I think I got from your book the impression that people, they know where the wreckage is, and they do, Mm -hmm. even today, sometimes divers go check it out. Is that that what you learned? Yeah, um, and, you know, that's what, how I originally found the story was through um, a treasure treasure hunters forum, and they talked about the GP Griffith and looking for the treasures that might still be there. So, you know, there is that area where it sank. They they looked there for like the treasure, like the trunks, and you know that kind of thing that might have sank jewelry. But you know, then that the main thing they were focusing on is that when they brought the bodies in. And all the the money that they had sewn around them, you know, that could possibly have still been in the grave sites. So, like, a lot of people with metal detectors will go through that area hoping to find coins left over from the grave site. So, it's it's kind of twofold. They do go to the water, but they also go there along the, the shoreline hunting for the treasures. When you were reading the forms, were you getting the impression people were actually finding things? Um, no, I, you know, nobody just popped up and said, oh, I, I found this and this and this. So there, there wasn't any reports that I had found, but I, you know, I could be off. I didn't read other treasure forums. Um, and you know, that's part of the treasure story too, is that there, the hunt is always on the possibility is always there. And I think that's what most treasure hunters are in love with. Anyhow, the, the hunt, the thrill of the idea of it so but no nobody had reported that they'd found anything on that particular site the idea of searching for coins that were buried in a mass grave Mm -hmm. it just feels wrong to me it just feels completely wrong to me i i would not want anything to do with that but I'm an archaeologist at heart, and the idea of looking for coins that were lost in a shipwreck mm-hmm. doesn't really bother me. And but it's the, the coins are still owned by the people who died. You know, I don't know. Do you have an ethical dilemma there? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think that was one of the most shocking pieces of this story, other than the tragedy, is that once they buried the bodies there, the fact that they had to form committees to stand guard over the bodies because people, you know, were were grave robbing right then and there. And that went on for weeks. That wasn't just one or two days while the story was a top news story. That went on for weeks that they had to stand there. So that whole, that whole element really um, is disturbing. And then like what you're saying, even today, 
I, there is something to it. I would rather go out into the lake and pull up a coin and say, oh, this might be from a shipwreck versus I'm going to go along the lake shore where I know there were graves at one point and find coins there. I just, I, I still feel that maybe a sense of grave robbing, even though the bodies had been moved, there's just something to it. You're right. So the Willow Beach Amusement Park, when they went to build this thing, they started dredging up the skeletons. How, you know, it wasn't that long. I mean, it was a, a few decades, but how had they lost track of where this gravesite was? Why wasn't it marked? I mean, did you run across any explanation of how that could have happened? Um, you know, it was it was on a what I understand it was kind of on a grassy knoll just up from, from the beach, and then I know they paid five dollars to have that originally deeded as the graveyard. But you know, once that amusement park came in and they just started to dig, I feel like maybe the graves were left unattended because most of the people that were buried there, um, nobody came to claim their body. And a lot of them, they didn't even have a name for. So it was almost, you know, a potter's field that nobody seemed to care about. Nobody came to visit. Um, so I, you know, I still would think the town would maybe have records and say, well, you can't dig here. But for some reason, it was just left left to itself and then they started to dig and you know the end result of that but yeah I don't know exactly how all that would have happened it wouldn't happen today at least I hope it wouldn't happen today but at different times <laughs> well I saw it took until the year 2000 just 20 years ago that they finally put a Ohio historical marker on that in that area, not on the gravesite, but I, I guess on the shoreline, pretty close to where it happened, to finally, you know, mark that this had happened. I guess it kind of surprised me that it took 150 years to have a marker that acknowledged, which is to this day still the biggest disaster ever in Lake Erie in terms of loss of life. Yeah, you know, that was surprising to me, too, that it took so long. But also, if you just talk to people in general that know a little bit about the lake or the Great Lakes, that's not a, a shipwreck that comes up a lot. You know, you'll hear stories on the Edmund Fitzgerald and then in Lake Erie, the, the, the best. The Marquette and Bessemer, which I believe you did a show on that one. And then there's the East Eastland um, ship disaster. But this is one that you, most people don't talk about. And I feel like it, it's, it's just almost lost history. So when they they put that marker there, um, that I was happy to hear that because most people don't know about it. And then I don't know if you got a chance to look at the marker, but it's the, the history that, that they have there. They did a really good job on that. So um, but anyway, yeah, I, and I read it. Yeah. They, they give quite a bit. That was nice. Yeah, they did a good job with that. Well, I guess what we need is somebody to write a song about this. And <laughs> that will help 
cement it in our minds. That's a job for Steve, I think. There you go. <laughs> or Shane over at From the Shadows podcast. He's a songwriter. That's right. Yeah, we'll get him on it. <laughs> Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. And listen, as soon as you're ready to um, get that book published, let's have you back on another Lake Erie mystery. Okay, that would be fantastic. And thank you for having me again. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. T.J. George is out of Columbus, Ohio, and calls his music blue-eyed soul, pop, and melodic groove. I think you'll see that the second you start listening to Can't Move Fast Enough, the song we're featuring tonight. It's a single off the new EP he just released in June, and it's available on Spotify, Apple Music, and all the major music sites. The EP is Fragmented Soul, Volume 2. So I asked TJ the inspiration for the song Can't Move Fast Enough, and here's what he said. I grew up a fan of Bob Ross, the painter, who had that program, Joy of Painting, on PBS. He would make great paintings, and you would think he would be finished, and then he would say, here is your bravery test. And then he would take Van Dyke Brown or Cadmium Yellow and whip the brush down the canvas. You would think he was ruining the painting, but it would only get better with a happy tree or a bridge. This song is about life's bravery tests. Steve, that just brought a huge smile to my face. I miss Bob Ross so much. Were you a fan of Bob Ross? I was a huge fan of happy trees and happy bushes and happy whatever he painted. Oh, he had, there was just, he called his show The Joy of Painting, and he couldn't have named it better because there was such joy in that. But I also understand the bravery test because I also, I'd be like, that painting is just perfect. And then it just this big swash of paint would go on, and you're like, what are you doing? And it would always come out to be beautiful. Yes, I would always say the same thing. Oh, what is he doing in the painting? It would look great. Stop it, stop it. It was perfect <laughs> well he was not just a talented painter but as tj george discovered also a very wise man anyway go find tj george on facebook instagram or his website tjgeorge.com well let's have another listen to can't move fast enough by tj george and we'll see you here next week for another episode of ohio mysteries Yeah.
at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.